it is particularly a pleasure to be here because we're celebrating God's faithfulness to this church. Our text is Psalm 92, verses 12 to 15. You can turn there if you want, uh, but I'll be reading the text for you. Larry has served faithfully here at Christ Covenant Church for 40 years. It's said behind every successful man, there's a good woman. Um, not an absolute statement, but in this case, true. Larry has Gladine. And I thought it'd be wonderful. I'm told everything's on the internet. That's what I've been told. I don't seem to be able to always find it. I thought it'd be interesting to know how many pastors serve for 40 years. Uh, so I went looking for that data, and I couldn't find it. But in my life in ministry, I've known hundreds of pastors, and I only know three for 40 years. So I'd like you to appreciate the rarefied air that we are in when we talk about 40 years. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great accomplishment. It takes providence because you don't control the number of days you live even. It takes providence, it takes character, and it takes gifting to last this long. So 40 years is, is a wonderful accomplishment. And I thought, well, I will look on the internet for like, what's the record? Like, like who has served as a pastor the longest? Because I thought Larry should know where he stands all time. <laughs> Turns out the longest length of ministry in the US is one Laban Ainsworth, who became the first pastor, very first pastor of First Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, in 1782 at the age of 24. And Laban served until 1858 when he died at the ripe age of 100. So that's <clears throat> 76 years of ministry. Uh, so Larry, I want to say strong start. 40 years, <clears throat> I mean, you're still going, you're still serving, so there, there's time to challenge this mark. I believe I can't even do the math. You'd be, you'd be pressing 100, right? You'd be way up there. But uh, there it is. That's the record uh, that you can go for if you like. But I do want to say seriously, Larry and Gladine, thank you for your faithful service to Christ and thank you for your faithful service to this church. This is a wonderful time. It is impossible to have one evening encapsulate 40 years of, of one's life. But last night was a wonderful experience uh, for Beth and for myself uh, where we saw several snapshots of what Larry and Gladine have meant to you all. And that was a special memory that I'll treasure. So Mark asked me to preach from Psalm 92, 12 to 15. I'm told this is a meaningful text to Larry and Gladine. I was on a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago with a number of pastors in Sovereign Grace who have over 30 years of experience in Sovereign Grace, and this scripture was read to us on that occasion. Psalm 92, verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree, and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. May God bless the preaching of his word. This is the word of God, and these words are true words. This sermon will have two parts, again, at Mark's request. First, we want to express our thankfulness to God for Larry and Gladine and their ministry. We want to celebrate the abundant grace in their lives, and we want to thank them. Secondly, we want to encourage you as a church to press on in faithfulness towards the calling on your life for the glory of God. And for the fame of Jesus Christ, there is work yet to be done. It may feel, in one sense, like a finish line for the McCalls, as Larry moves off of paid staff, but it's not a finish line for us. 
this church, church still has work and business to do, and we're going to press on into that. So first, our thankfulness for Larry and Gladine. In our sermons in Sovereign Grace Churches, we attempt to preach Christ and Him crucified. We attempt to preach the whole counsel of God, all the scriptures, not overlooking any parts that exist. We attempt to make disciples as we preach. So, you could ask, is it appropriate to take a sermon to thank God for the McCalls and to thank them for their service? We answer without hesitation because we're doing it, yes. Yes, this is appropriate. Why? Well, as a church, we aim to hear the Word of God and do the Word of God. We are in no way gathered only to hear. Correct? We are here to take in the Word and then apply the Word in our lives. We want to live the Word for the glory of God. This was a hallmark of Larry's ministry. So what do the Scriptures say about leaders? Just a couple of verses I'll give you. Hebrews 13.7 Remember your leaders. Remember them. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Remember your leaders and examine their lives. Look at their way of life. Look at the outcome and see if it isn't desirable for you. And what do the scriptures say about how we treat one another? And one another includes pastors and leaders. We show them honor. Romans 12, 10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So we remember them. We consider their way of life, the outcome of their way of life, and we show them honor. So we notice they flourish and they grow. I see verses 12 and 13. Because they are planted in the house of the Lord. By house of the Lord, we'll take that to understand as the church Notice, planted. They're planted. If you only take one word out of here today, that's the word I want you to remember. Planted. I want to ask you to consider your life. Can it be said of you, you are planted in the house of the Lord? I'm not asking, are you here today? Because of course you are. I'm not asking, do you attend regularly? It's wonderful if you do. I'm asking if you're planted. Larry and Gladine have been planted here for 40 years. To be planted means there's a stability. There is a permanence. There is a trustworthiness. There is a foundation about you as a human being that folks can count on you simply because you are planted. You're not moving. You're not shaken. You're not a tumbleweed Christian just blowing through here briefly and off to somewhere else. You're planted. You're anchored. You are rooted. This, this must mean that one is rooted in Christ, which is language Colossians 2.7 uses. We're planted. We're rooted in Christ as believers. But we must press on to maturity, and we don't press on to maturity by going to a different church every week or every month or every year or moving every couple of years. That is not the path to maturity. The path to maturity is planted. Roots in the ground, anchored and secure by this. I should build some fences because you don't know me. I'm not saying one never changes churches. One can't have a good reason to leave. One never relocates. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that while you're here, planted. Roots in the ground for the glory of God. This is the way to success in my own life. My own maturity, as far as I've gotten, has been the result of preaching and teaching I've received, number one. But number two is fellowship and hospitality, whether around a kitchen table or in a living room where people are sharing lives with one another. And sometimes, in the midst of encouragement, Sometimes there's correction and adjustment being brought because we're all in need of that, every single one of us. It's in those contexts that we grow. And so you can take in preaching any number of places and grow, no doubt. Even the internet, you can grow. But there is fellowship 
that if we lack, we can't say we're planted. It, it, we will not develop as believers and as Christians as we ought to. When I started in the ministry uh, a number of decades ago, uh, I thought that when I did premarital counseling, I could tell whether this couple would prosper or not. I thought I could tell whether they had a good foundation, whether there was maturity, and whether they were going to make it. And as the decades have unfolded, what I've learned is <clears throat> when I'm doing premarital counseling, I don't have a clue about the outcome of their lives because I've seen individuals who I'm thinking, this is shaky, I'm not sure about this, I don't know if this is a good idea. I mean, we're praying for them all, but some a little harder than others, and I think these folks need some special help. I've seen some of those folks make it, and I've seen others, and one dear couple who was children born and raised in Living Hope come to mind who are no longer together, they didn't make it through. And what's the difference? What's the difference in why some made it through and others didn't? I can tell you the difference. It's planted. Were they planted or not? Because the folks that I've seen have a marriage survive and prosper even are folks who are in a local church, but they move to the core of that church. They move to the center. They aren't just on the fringe playing around the edges. They aren't playing church. They're actually a part of the body of Christ as full participants. They are planted there, and as they're planted, they grow. And as I've watched individuals, again, over the decades, move away from the center, they move to a risky place where things are not as sure and certain and healthy. It is those who are planted who prosper. The McCalls, by the grace of God, were planted here, and Larry devoted himself to his Lord and to this church by having a long-term ministry in one place. He was able to preach the word of God faithfully. He was able to train up future leaders. He was able to shepherd the flock of God. He was able to model an exemplary marriage and home life. He protected the flock from false doctrine. And he was devoted to mission. Not only individual missionaries, but Larry himself made trips to Italy and more recently to Brazil with Bert Turner, another pastor in our region. So Larry, we thank God for you and we thank God for the ministry of the McCalls here in this church. Larry was committed to the Word of God. He was committed to hearing the Word and doing the Word. And so on one occasion, he found himself preaching through 1 Corinthians and he became convinced of a belief in spiritual gifts. This would cost him friendships and relationships, but I'd like to communicate to you my respect for a pastor who will hear the word and attempt to do the word because it is the word of God. And, and so I always have respect for folks like this in Sovereign Grace. Uh, I had an acquaintance uh, who was a pastor who attended a Presbyterian seminary, and he became convinced that infant baptism was the way to go. It's not our practice in Sovereign Grace. We practice believer's baptism. But he became convinced from the Word of God that that was the way to go. I can't see the argument personally, but he became convinced is the point. And he ended up resigning from the pastorate, leaving Sovereign Grace, and joining a Presbyterian denomination. And I respect him for that. I respect Men who hear the word and do the word and apply it to the best of their abilities. They're true to their conscience, and that's the path they take. Even when it's hard, even when there's cost, we are never losers to hear the word and do the word for the glory of God to the best of our ability. And Larry, I respect you for that. The godly, the psalm says, flourish. The godly flourish. Just, just a question, have you ever seen Larry angry? Because I haven't. Uh, I'm sure he's angry at sin and the devil. But to encounter Larry is to encounter an individual who's joyful, content, solid, peaceful, steady. It's just a joy to encounter him. I'm, I'm sure he sins somewhere, somehow. I'm, I, I, know, I tell myself no one's perfect, right? But I just... 
I don't have any evidence to the contrary when it comes to Larry, so I'm no help there. Verse 14, the righteous bear fruit in old age. I don't know anyone who wants the title of old age. Whenever I encounter people and I say, I'm old, they try to adjust me and correct me. I've got 18 grandkids. Like, is, isn't 18 grandkids old? Like, I, I think that's old. I think I walk in the room, you should stand up. But, but some, some don't think old exists. This psalm would disagree. Uh, the righteous bear fruit in old age. Larry still writes, preaches, serves with zeal and vigor, and I respect Larry for that. Well done. God's grace has overflowed to you, Larry, and you still exert influence in folks' lives, and that's a wonderful thing. Your sure and certain testimony, verse 15, is that the Lord is upright, and He is your rock. He is your personal rock. He's a foundation your life has been built upon. And how did that happen? How did that come to be? Well, at some point, you became convinced your sin was a problem. And at some point, you became aware the cross was a solution God provided in Christ. And you desired Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And you went all in. You went all in in following Jesus you put it all on the line. You went to Grace College and you helped in the early days of this church to get it up and going and you worked a job at the same time. You, you worked hard. You worked hard in those days. You still work hard and we take notice of your hard work. You have persevered with joy and it was a joy to hear in your story there was risk involved. When you left PA, uh, Catani, to come out this way, there was no certainty. There, there, was, no, there, there was nothing sure or certain about it. Uh, there's not even income uh, from the church. And yet, the man takes the risk and works hard, supported by Gladine. And that is a wonderful testimony to the grace of God. So you built your life on Jesus Christ, Jesus is lovely, he is perfection, and there's no unrighteousness in him. He, he is faithful in all his ways to us always. He's always faithful to us. There's no unrighteousness in him. And so Larry was all in, in following Jesus and loving him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Larry, I'm confident you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You led this church, you fed this church, you protected this church, you laid down your life for the saints. And so 1 Peter 5, 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I am inclined to think, oh, when the chief shepherd appears, I'll get a list of my faults and shortcomings and mistakes. It's not what the Bible says. You'll receive the unfading crown glory. Larry has only one boast, Galatians 6.14. Paul writes, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's why Larry in his ministry was willing to spend and be spent on behalf of this church for the glory of God. Grace was given by God, Ephesians 4, 7 says so. So different pastors, different human beings are gifted and graced in different ways. And I say this for the glory of God. I wanted to share the grace that I've seen from my perspective in Larry's life. So you know what it looks like from my end. Uh, the first thing I noticed about Larry upon meeting him and I'm sharing these things because you might just take it for granted because it's Larry and Larry's Larry and, you know, you don't think about it. But the first thing I noticed, the word I'll use is gravitas. The first thing I noticed about Larry was gravitas. There was a weightiness to him. There was a substance. When he spoke, you listened, like the old E.F. Hutton commercials. Uh, you paid attention because there was this weight to what Larry would share. The second thing I noticed was humility. Now, 
No wise person thinks they're wise, and no humble person thinks they're humble. But I noticed humility. I was out on one occasion. I believe it's when we were walking through the process of, of uh, who was going to lead the church in the lead role. We were working through that, and it was over at the McCall's. And Larry had a manuscript that had been submitted, and he got the feedback, initial feedback from the editors. Now, Larry could have just said, got feedback from the editors, got some things to work on. But Larry specifically shared, well, here's what they said, here's what I've got to work on, and there was considerable work. And when you've labored to write, and you set it in, like you're putting your life on the line, you don't know what's coming back. And so he had some work to do with it, to, to sharpen it and clean it up. It's, it's always the case. But he, he shared openly and freely. There just wasn't any junk in the air. There wasn't any, like errors being put on. There wasn't any, I'm trying to impress you. Uh, there's just humility. Another way I noticed Larry's humility is, this isn't referred to as Larry's church. I've noticed that. Uh, there are some churches where it's referred to as the senior pastor's church. And, and it's shorthand, and it's, it's trying to make a point. It's not always making a theological statement. But, but it is noteworthy that this church is not referred to as Larry's church. That is, I think, a wonderful thing. Larry also has a heart for young leaders. And this is, I think, an evidence of grace in his life. I love his heart for young leaders. Uh, when I first met Larry and other pastors here, and it was explained to me that Larry was looking for a younger person to put in as lead pastor wanted to hand the baton off. I was just listening. I'm thinking, okay, interesting. I think you're a little young. Hope you know what you're doing. I mean, you know more than me. I don't know anything. But like, like I don't know. Are you sure you shouldn't do this longer? That's a thought running through my mind. But he had a heart for young leaders and a heart to see the next generation involved and active. And that is a very commendable thing. I celebrate that. Larry also has a sharp theological mind. Uh, not every pastor does. I wouldn't put myself in this category. Larry has a sharp theological mind. He serves on our ordination committee in the region precisely because he has a sharp theological mind. Very keen, very insightful, well thought out, and so he serves us in making sure our ordinations are sound and solid in our context. And the fifth thing I noticed about Larry, and this was consistent over the years, he loves the flock of God. He loves the flock of God. You can tell when a pastor loves the flock. There's not a way that I know of to put an air on, like, I'll act like I love you so you think I love you, but I don't actually. You can actually tell when a pastor truly loves the flock. And in hearing testimonies last night, it was evident that Larry and Gladine had been amongst the flock cared for the flock, and they had friends. And you can't buy friends either, right? Friends, I can't explain friendship to you. Friendship happens sometimes in some places. It doesn't happen with everybody. Not everybody's a friend. But there was Larry's care for the flock, which was evident, and then there was this sense of there are friends in his life. And those are the pieces of grace that I have noticed along the way on this journey. So now, together as a church, what do we do? We have big shoes to fill. Uh, what do we do? What is, what is the path forward? We have things to accomplish. We have things to do together. I am very delighted to hear that the church is prospering uh, under Mark's leadership. Uh, I believe it was two years ago when I was out to help install Mark as lead pastor, and then I was involved in the process with other leaders here the year before that. I was firmly convinced Mark was the guy for the job. It has been a wonderful thing from a distance to see the unity that your pastors and leaders enjoy, because unity in leaders always trickles down and infiltrates the church in, in glorious ways. And so I've been delighted to see the effect of Mark's leadership but we need to press on together. How is it that the righteous flourish and bear fruit in their old age? Um, I read the word sap in the text, and I'm probably the only one with a demented mind. I can't help it. Um, 
But when I read the word sap, I think sappy. And like, Larry and Gladine aren't sappy. So I can't refer to the sap part of it. I saw it's in the title. Um, can't go there uh, because that's not, that's not them. But it does mean there's this life and there's this life we need to have together. So I'm not going to exhaust the topic here by a long shot. But I want to give you four handles, four core necessities you're going to need for the journey. And under each one of these points, I'll share some scriptures to help you see that it is the Word of God. First, you need the grace of God. The people of God flourish, absolutely thrive, when they're rooted and grounded in the grace of God. I was raised in a church that didn't talk about grace. Grace was a word I did not hear. I knew the song Amazing Grace, but I had not heard of the concept of grace. Uh, where I was raised, godliness was defined by what you didn't do. There was a list of things you didn't do, and some of them with good reason. Some of them were biblical, some were not. But there was this list of things you don't do. If you don't do them, you're godly, which meant you could actually be an unbeliever and be godly but by that definition, which of course is not a true Christian. Uh, I'm confident this was not the case in Larry's ministry here. I'm confident the grace of God was central. <clears throat> what is grace? Grace means favor, kindness, goodwill, or blessing. In mercy, God does not punish us. In grace, God gives us that which we did not earn or deserve. Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace isn't a thing or a power. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, 4 and following, we read about the grace that's found in Jesus Christ, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ is the summary of grace. Here's a, two quotes uh, to feed your minds and souls. John Stott writes, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jesus Christ loved us. He cares for us. He condescends. He stoops. He enters this world. And he rescues us. Jerry Bridges says in Transforming Grace, one of the best kept secrets among Christians today is this, Jesus paid it all. I mean, all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins and your ticket to heaven, he purchased every blessing and every answer to prayer you will ever receive, every one of them, no exceptions. Which is why the Apostle Paul, that great man, could say this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, and every pastor knows this to be true. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. A church full of saints who are rooted and grounded in grace will be joyful, restful, contented. They will be an encouraging place they will serve. You can't leave grace behind on the journey. I want to commend to you for reading a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. Perhaps you have it. Just read a chapter at a time. It breaks apart. Um, feed on who Jesus is. Feed on the grace of God. And I want to commend to you, if you haven't for a while, do read the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do feed on them again to behold this person, Jesus Christ, fall more deeply in love with him. So first is grace. Second, you need the knowledge of God. By God, we mean the Orthodox Christian view, one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all important persons. All of our problems, 
are found in an incorrect view of God. We haven't seen him, and this was Thomas's problem. If you remember, Thomas was not believing. He had not seen Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he believed. You and I do not see Jesus, but we believe in him because he has affected us in our lives, and we love him. If we could see Jesus as he really is, our lives would be changed. If we could see him as he really is. We have pictures in the word, and we hold him in the word. If we could physically see him as he is, our lives would be radically transformed. So we hold him in the word, and that's a wonderful picture, but we'd be changed forever if we could see him as he is. Perhaps the greatest challenge we face in our life is seeing God then correctly as he really is. The disciples, remember, were face to face with Jesus, with God which they recognized at points. And even they doubted. They're with Jesus in a storm, boats rocking, Jesus is asleep, and they say what? Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? And that can be the experience we face in going through the Christian life. We can find difficulty coming our way, and we want to know if he cares. But he is with us, and he cares, and he loves when we trust him for everything we are facing in life. So A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, page one says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We read the word of God to know God and lay hold of his great and precious promises by which we live. So in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, commenting on this section of Scripture, says, what were we made for? To know God. What should we... What aims should we set for ourselves? To know God. What is the eternal life Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. John 17, 3. What's the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Hosea 6, 6. I desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. From time to time, as we study and read the Word and seek to know God, from time to time, in extraordinary ways, God breaks in. When Beth and I were back in high school, uh, we were at a youth retreat, and four kids, Beth was one of them, I was not, went off and prayed after a meeting felt as though they met with God and they came back in, gathered the group together and we began to share what God is doing. And for me, in my life, it remains the most profound moment, interaction with God that I've experienced. I, I didn't know how special it was at the time. I knew it was remarkable, just didn't know that it wasn't what happens uh, along, along the way. But God met with us and lives were changed. We got the church together on our return on a Sunday night uh, for a Sunday night meeting. And there, as kids shared what God was doing, one elderly man, bitter at the church, hard heart, breaks down in tears weeping because God met him as well. We read... And we study, we take in the word, we look at promises, and God in his kindness from time to time breaks in and meets with us. And our lives are changed. And it is wonderful when God does that. I want to commend to you the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's in your bookstore. Pick up a copy. Full disclosure, the first two times I tried to read it, 
I didn't make it through. I dropped it. I was somehow bored out of my mind. It just says, I've got an issue and problem. Uh, I don't know how that was the case. It's wonderful. It's probably the only book from the last century that will survive a couple hundred years out if Jesus tarries. Um, we must know God. God rules and reigns over all things. We must know God. It's the most important thing about us. So in all you're doing, in everything that you're about, you must know him. Third, you must get knowledge of yourself. We need a firm grasp of reality. Reality is real. It's what is true, and we must understand it. We need to know ourselves while we must avoid introspection. Uh, most of us think too much about ourselves already, but not critically enough, perhaps. Theologian John Calvin, solid in so many ways, wrote this in the beginning of his institutes. He said, our wisdom insofar as it is deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Glorious truth. We must know God and we must know ourselves. In Ephesians 2, well, let me say this. Ephesians is a wonderful book. It's one of the most significant books in the Bible. I recently saw several threads on Twitter where Different leaders and pastors were listing their five favorite books of the Bible, the five most meaningful. Ephesians makes the list for many. David Pallison said we could counsel from this book alone. And if you know Ephesians, it's common to think that the first three chapters are doctrine, indicatives, statements of truth, and it's common to think that the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are the application, the practicals, what we do. But there is actually one command in chapter 2. There is one imperative in chapter 2 in the midst of all those glorious indicatives. Here it is, Ephesians 2, 11 and following. Therefore, remember. Remember. Because we've got, we got to know ourselves. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's Jewish, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember who you were. You were separated from Christ. You were, if you came to Jesus as a six-year-old, and you never recall being an enemy of God. Nevertheless, you were at one time alienated and separated from Christ. If you came to Christ when you're older, you might recall and remember you were, in fact, an enemy of God. You were going your own way. You were doing your own thing and whatever it was, and somehow he arrested you. He brought you near. Remember the change that has come this, why should we remember it? Well, it helps us walk in hope and in love and compassion because we have hope and compassion on those who are currently lost and perishing. Some of us have friends who are not believers in Christ. Some of us have family members who are not believers in Christ. Some of us may have prodigals. We have one in our family a prodigal who we pray for regularly. Friends, remember, remember who you were. You once were alienated. You once were separated. But God in Christ drew you to him. And so we pray that God moves and God acts in the lives of those we love. And it can certainly be any acquaintance or anyone we meet. We don't give up on folks. The prodigals, harder challenge. We simply keep praying and we ask for God to move on their behalf. Further, as we live the Christian life, Jesus teaches us to be careful we aren't self-righteous. Christians have a bit of reputation for being self-righteous. We have a log in our eye and folks don't tend to encounter our compassion. We're dealing with a speck in them, Jesus says, but we're beating them with a telephone pole coming out of our eye. So I encourage you to be aware of the grace that's active in your lives. We often aren't aware of grace that's built into our life, but we encourage others when we see grace. 
let it be said of us that we celebrate grace and let it be said of us that we aren't surprised at sin. When the world sins, it never ceases to amaze me how Christians can be amazed at the world that they sin. They're sinners. Sinners sin. And the depth and degrees, there ought not to be any surprise if we've read the scriptures. Sodom, Gomorrah, or whatever. We, we ought not to be surprised. Sin, sin is hardly surprising. Grace is amazing. And so we must remember that in our lives, we at one time were alienated, we were separated, but God brought us near. And fourth, I must mention perseverance. The Bible has a cluster of words in the New Testament, uh, endurance or steadfastness, uh, to go along with perseverance. It's all the same idea that we keep on going. And when we think of endurance and perseverance, <laughs> one doesn't typically persevere while they're celebrating a day at the beach. Right? That's, we, we don't persevere. If you don't like the beach, of course, this breaks down. You, you would be persevering. Um, but, but like, there are commercials where they show a person sitting on a beach chair at the beach with the waves coming in. The point is, you're relaxed, you're chilled, and everything's wonderful in your life. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about perseverance. When it talks about perseverance in the Bible, it means there are hard things going on. There are difficulties taking place in our lives. And this, again, ought not to surprise us, Jesus has promised to us the road we're on will be difficult. It is a hard path. It is not an easy road. If you're looking for an easy road, there are all kinds of ways to go. Following Jesus is not it. To follow Jesus, we're called to walk down a hard path. To enter the kingdom, we face many trials. And friends, we must stick together. We must keep going together. If there are folks that slow us down, so be it. We must walk through life together. Back home at Living Hope, we celebrated our 35th anniversary, uh, September 1, and we have a handful of folks that have been there for 35 years. And I can tell you, they're planted. They're pillars in the church. Uh, they're spiritual giants. Uh, I hope to be like them. They, they have pressed through and endured through different seasons because every church has difficult seasons and they've done that and they've done it for the glory of God and it's an amazing thing. We're on a difficult road. The reason for this is God cares about our maturity. We often want things to go nicely. He cares about our maturity. That's what he looks for in our lives. We're transformed into the image of Christ. So in James 1, count of all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because Christ is our all in all, the focal point of life and the way of endurance, we look at Jesus. We fix our eyes on him as we're making our way through the jungle. And victory is promised to the one who doesn't quit. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So you might be in a hard season right now. It might be difficult, and you might believe no one can relate to you. I have a friend back home who uh, passed away this summer in July. He was 44. He left a wife and five kids ages 10 to 17. It's hard. It's hard. And sometimes the only comfort you have is presence. Uh, there aren't words to be spoken. The pain and the grief is that real and that raw. It may seem hopeless. It may seem like the water is high. It's hot. But God is with you. And you're called to persevere. And we persevere by looking to Jesus. Because Jesus did not have an easy life. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was hated. Whipped. Put on a cross for us. 
and we're called to look to him and follow him, follow in his steps. And so there are really hard things we face. But we persevere and we do it together. We stick together for the glory of God. So let me close. I have confidence in the grace of God that's at work in your pastors. They will keep pressing forward in the work Larry has performed, celebrated over these past 40 years. They will equip you in the grace of God, the knowledge of God, knowledge of yourself, and perseverance, and you will flourish because the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Lord, you're our rock. You're our confidence. Uh, you're all we have. Forgive us for times where we've sought to walk in our strength and our abilities and haven't fixed our eyes on you. Lord, give us grace to look to you. Give us grace because we're dependent. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But we look to you having confidence that as we have looked at the ministry of the McCalls over these 40 years, you're faithful. You're their strength. And we look at their lives, consider their ways, and we desire to emulate that example. Be glorified in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken. Appreciate it, brother. Uh, just a moment, I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Larry and uh, would, if Gladine would like to, or to come up. She's been having some back issues, uh, so it could be, if you want, we could even have you be on the floor, if that helps. Uh, but I just wanted to share that as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy the last couple weeks, uh, I have noticed over and over again, even as it's Moses delivering this kind of final speech, there's a reference to Joshua over and over again of this younger man who's gotten to live life with Moses and who's going to carry on in a sense his legacy. And uh, I've just been, not that Larry and myself are <laughs> remotely equal to those uh, brothers, but I, it's made me thankful just in seeing those little glimpses of how God orchestrated that relationship of Joshua and Moses to, to uh, see in myself uh, Moses of sorts uh, who's gone before him, but that I've gotten to, to live with and see and will continue to as God enables me to serve in the life of this church. But I wanted you to be able to hear uh, from Pastor Larry and uh, Gladine if she'd like to share just some words uh, to share with you as a congregation, as their church family. Uh, so I wanted to give you opportunity. Do you want to stand down here? Or would you like to come up? Okay. All right. Wonderful. Let's see if I can find a voice. <laughs> thank you for the love you've shown us over this past weekend. Ken, thank you for your encouragement today. Um, that means a lot, brother. And Mark, for your gracious friendship and leadership. We love you immensely and thank God for you. And thanks to all of you for the way you've loved us this weekend. But you know what? This weekend is just a taste of what we've experienced for the last 40 years. And as I was thinking about this weekend, I was thinking about what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Listen to this. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so some of you have walked this journey with us for a matter of weeks, some months, some years, and yes, some decades. And to look back and to realize these are partners in the gospel. That we've never walked this journey alone. The Lord's been with us, but so has his people, you. And uh, some of those folks are in glory now. And as the years go on, we realize more and more have graduated. And we'll each have our turn, won't we? But many of you here have walked with us. We want to thank God for you. But, um, you know, it's interesting what Paul says in the next verse. Let me just read this. He says, listen to, the, listen to the voice. Listen to the passion. He says, I am sure of this. Paul's sure of something. What is he sure of? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we, we look back, as it were, and we look at God's faithfulness over 40 years, and we say, look at what he's done. And that moves us to look to the future, look at what he will do. And by the way, we almost always read that verse individualistically. 
But do you know Paul actually uses a plural there? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in y'all, or as we said in the hills of western Pennsylvania, good work in yuns, <laughs> he'll bring it to completion. He's talking to the church. And that he who began a good work among you all, CCC, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So today, why don't we pivot? Thank God for the past. But let's look forward to what God's going to do in the coming years. Until that day of Christ Jesus, he'll continue to do his work of completion among y'all, among you. We look forward to that day. Thank you so much for your kind leadership. In a moment, I want to pray for you uh, while you're up here on behalf of our church. We want to give you two gifts as well. Uh, one on the envelope is more of a material gift of sorts. It's to a bed and breakfast up on Lake Michigan uh, for you to be able to spend a few nights up there together sometime in the near future. And then this one uh, in here, the scrapbook, is more of a sentimental nature. Uh, some of the notes that you know people have been writing or many even emailed in the last couple months are included uh, in that scrapbook for you to read today if you like and then in the months and years ahead as well. So if you wrote one of those, it's now included in this that's being gifted uh, to them. But I wanted to pray on behalf of our church for you, uh, expressing thankfulness to God directly, but then praying for your ongoing ministry and your life here in our church. But let's join together in prayer. I'm going to actually invite you to sing, because we're going to sing together uh, after we pray. Um, but I want to pray together, uh, thanking the Lord for you all, uh, and asking uh, for his further blessing upon you. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of the McCalls. Uh, thank you for their willingness 40 years ago to return. Uh, when they had gone home to Pennsylvania to uh, come here and establish a new home. Thank you for the love that you had planted in their hearts for this congregation long ago and that you've sustained. Thank you for their faithfulness to this congregation. Uh, thank you for the many ways that you have ministered to us through them and that you continue to. Uh, may you continue to raise up more to follow in their footsteps, uh, not just as pastors, uh, but as members of our church, as brothers and sisters who can use the gifts that you've given to us to be planted here in this congregation and to help others grow in the faith as well. Uh, God, may you continue to be faithful to us as a church. May you strengthen us. May you establish us. And even as we sing now, uh, we pray that you be brought honor. And uh, if Jesus tarries 40 more years, we pray that you continue to raise up new leaders, even beyond me, even beyond us who are in this room, people who can continue to believe and proclaim the gospel to a next generation and to the next until our Savior Jesus returns. Uh, but we pray this all in his name. Amen.